You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Inside dance music, outside night music. The Lodge production plays part where woodlands haunt, part where aspen glow, part where America, part where we like to get smashed. Welcome, says Oppenheimer, night watchman. His incomprehensible footfall because no foot at all. One evening, I looked up from the sink stand, he says. Twin albino fawns there. Mute masterpiece, statistically speaking. This text for the creature case. I place it there in understanding. Sometimes I think I step inside his head. Sometimes I find the things caught there catch also within my visible. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Scottish Poetry Libraries podcast series. My name is Colin Waters and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now, while I would describe every one of our podcasts as the bomb, as I believe the young people put it, this episode really is. Or rather, it's about the bomb, the nuclear bomb, and its creator, J. Robert Oppenheimer. The American poet, Joni Wallace, grew up in Los Alamos, the birthplace of the atomic bomb, and it's this personal connection that informs her latest collection of poetry, Kingdom Come Radio Show. Ordinarily, Joni lives in Tucson, Arizona, where she teaches at the University of Arizona Poetry Centre, but she was over in Scotland in June on a residency in the Highlands, and while over, she popped into the library to talk about her new collection, Oppenheimer, and growing up in the shadow of the mushroom cloud. The first question I wanted to ask was about the poems in the collection and how they circle around the central figure of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, the man behind the Manhattan Project. I think a lot of people who are interested in history will know something of Oppenheimer, but I guess what I wanted to talk about was how there's a real personal dimension to these poems about Oppenheimer, because you grew up in Los Alamos, which was the site of the testing of the nuclear bomb, wasn't it? Exactly. So my father, um, years after, probably 20 years after Oppenheimer, uh, was a scientist there who worked on the particle beam Mm. accelerator that they have uh, built there. So I grew up in that landscape, and of course all the ghosts of the project are very present um, in the buildings and the stories and in the landscape. And I think I was always haunted by the story of the making of the bomb. I mean, it's so iconic, the name, you know, Los Alamos. um, It has such a history. I mean, what was that like as a kid becoming aware of that, that you were basically living at the place where the the thing that everybody dreads in the world was created. It was, you know, interesting. I, I think the awareness came a little later for me. I mean, as growing up there as kids, we were um, immersed in the outdoors and the beauty of it. And, you know, we were smoking our cigarettes on Bikini Atoll Drive or <laughs> Trinity <laughs> Road, not really comprehending. Yeah. Nuclear um, Holocaust Street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, and not really comprehending some of the significance of that. After leaving there and since going back there, it's, it's really 
fresh in my mind what happened there. And mm. Because you, myself, you know, in, in yourself, we grew up, I guess, during the Cold War, so it wasn't an academic thing. I think maybe it's getting less academic these days, but, you know, after the Soviet Empire fell, you know, there was a period where people felt less intimidated by nuclear weaponry. But during the 1980s, when I was growing up, certainly there was always that sort of slight fear in the background, there was lots of films and documentaries made about what would happen if a nuclear bomb fell. So I guess when you were in Los Alamos and growing up and becoming aware of that, uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't an academic thing, it wasn't a science fiction thing, it was so real and your dad himself was working on it too. Well, not on the project, but he was working in that area as a scientist. Yes, exactly. And you're right, it, it was much more present in the 80s um, and maybe it's becoming present again now with the whole North Korea uh, threat and yes. everyone's talking about it again but as we grew up it was you know the bomb shelters where is the closest bomb shelter and what do you do mm. and remember do you remember the uh, I don't know if you had them here in Europe the radio broadcast signal that they would test mm. over the radio station every week or two this loud you know blaring siren <laughs> if you hear this tune in because you know we're under attack we never got that. You didn't get that. <laughs> I think that I'll never be. forget the sound of it. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. So, um, as we were saying, Oppenheimer is kind of the central character of your collection, Kingdom Come Radio Show. Uh, in a way, I feel it's strange there hasn't been more. You know, obviously film and TV and non-fiction have dealt with Oppenheimer uh, quite a bit, but poetry hasn't really uh, came around to doing much on Oppenheimer, apart from maybe the odd individual poem here and there and it's interesting because I think he himself was someone who was interested in, in, in poetry wasn't he I was looking up that he apparently two days before the Trinity test and that was a test where the nuclear bomb was first activated he expressed his hopes in, in a quotation from the I'm going to mispronounce this Bhagavad Gita he wrote well he, he quoted in battle in the forest as the precipice in the mountains on the great dark great sea in the midst of javelins and arrows in sleep and confusion in the depths of shame the good deeds a man has done before defend him you know so he's a man himself who turned to poetry so it's interesting poetry hasn't done much on, on Oppenheimer himself yes um, as I worked on the book I found some more uh, things that artists have done about Oppenheimer. There is an opera called oh. Dr. Atomic that... Oh, yeah, I think. Yeah. Have you heard of that? I yeah. haven't heard it. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen it. Uh, they're gonna, I hear that they're going to debut it in Santa Fe next year. They're going to... It's already been uh, performed in San Francisco and different places, but there is that. And also there's a fabulous poet, Jane Miller, who lives in Tucson, who's written some about Oppenheimer and the, the making of the bomb. Mm. And there are some, there's a, uh, also some fiction writers who've written about the women that lived in Los Alamos, the wives, um, mm. Kitty Oppenheimer being one of those. There was a TV program recently, Manhattan, I think it was called. It's not been shown in Britain. Have you seen it? I've seen it. I, I just happened upon it and watched it one night. It was fantastic. Wow. Well, I'll try and see if I can find it. Shall we hear a poem from the collection? Something sure. maybe that shows off Oppenheimer? Absolutely. So I'm going to read a couple sections from the long poem in the book called Oppenheimer Drive. See how twilight makes its game, hat rabbit, hat rabbit, chattering off, swag of deer in head to tail formation. If I open the curtain, cutting room where one sits and sits some more, 
If I am metter and send fly sheet on the table, invisible ink pen to ink in the ghost particles, sinkers on the trinket tray, all the way to China. If I am cinematographer, stand still, these skies, a silver screen, uranium drive-in. If I am audiographer, boom, boom, says the boom carpet. If I am oneographer, beginning, middle, end, dear, a threnody. Enter dear, tagged U-235, a smasher, rye whiskey, a cry. Enter dear, made of light, star of light emitted just here. Enter dear with a window for a side, lilies, a bone white plexus, and enters Oppenheimer. He sees his decent suit. Within the image library, an O of surprise and sound like no legs, no tail, a hush across and never touching a dance floor. Hello, you and you and you in your flammable coats, says he. So that's the section where he enters the poem um, in his ghostly form, I suppose. On the back of the book, um, one of the people who was talking about it on, you know, recommending it as you should, uh, describes the poems as documentary poetics, which I thought was a really interesting term. Uh, and I felt it fit, fit the poems, but rather than me... Um, <laughs> say why that is. Why did, what, what were you trying to do with that, the documentary aspect of the book? I think that's something that helped me frame the project from um, taking it from something as an artist and writer I wanted to go from writing about to actually having a form to put the writing in. And there's so much official documentation of the project that I wanted to make the lyric document. What, what is the poetic document of the project? How did it affect us? As humans, you know, what is the what is the residual of that project? Mm-hmm. And you cover obviously um, Oppenheimer's time as the head of the uh, Manhattan Project, and you also cover something of his personal life as well. Maybe we should say for anyone who doesn't know the Oppenheimer story, something of of his background. So, when was he born? About I think nineteen oh four. Yeah, and he was. He was born. And lived to 63. And he had, his mother was an artist, wasn't she? Yeah, Ella Friedman. Because you've got a very interesting poem in there about the fact his mum, she didn't have a left hand, is that right? That's right. I think it was a left hand. Um, she had a prothesis and wore a glove. I'll tell the story of this poem. It's one of those things that can happen in poetry, I think, is I was getting really immersed in this material. Um, there was a French surrealist who I felt needed to be in a poem in a conversation with Oppenheimer, uh, Mara Oppenheimer, Oppenheim, I guess you could say. And she had done a piece of work called Glove that is a hand that's just a glove with veins on it. And I don't know why I felt these two needed to be talking together. I kept trying to put them together. I kept putting them together. I did put them together in a poem, and then in the course of doing some more research, I found out that his mother had a very similar looking oh. hand. She would have been wearing the white glove, you know, so it was one of those connections that is fabulous and fortuitous, I guess. I guess uh, Jung would say that was uh, synchronicity, wouldn't he? Exactly. Shall we hear that poem, then we can come back sure. to talking about Oppenheimer's life? Um, so there are a couple of voices in the poem. And this is, sec- this is section three of the book where I, I 
try to have him speaking and put him uh, in conversations with other people, Oppenheim being one of them. And it's called How Mercurial the Water Tower After Merit Oppenheim. And there are radio plays. Uh, so this is for radio, Voice of Oppenheim or Voice of Oppenheim. And there's an insect chorus, which we'll have to imagine. <laughs> I might be able to make the buzzing sound, but you can imagine. Oppenheimer. Day after day, the water tower, sentinel. It casts a pall amidst the praise chorus, glittering strange. Chorus, sound of cicadas. Oppenheim, acclaim, eclat, for the sake of. Oppenheimer, it makes my ghastly ladder. Chorus, tick, 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 tick. Oppenheimer, the eulogy plays. Chorus, sound of cicadas. Oppenheimer, if I climb up into the hollow, another bell of a bomblet. Oppenheim, Kilroy was here. This graffitied on the casing. Oppenheimer, text for the boneyard. Oppenheim, theater of many. Oppenheimer, the matter of mother, her white gloved hand. Oppenheim, kidskin, the glove. Oppenheimer, I paint myself in. Oppenheim, red ganglion, ventricular bows, chorus, fades. Silent. To return to the life of Oppenheimer, he was something of a prodigy as a child, wasn't he? but um, maybe found it hard to make friends and, and socialise. He was quite an isolated character from a young age. Yes, that's, that's what his biographies say, biographers say. I think he, um, like many kids of that sort, are maybe very inwardly focused. Mm. And I think he had a rock collection he was very into. And I think he was bullied, um, it's reported. And... You know, I think he lived probably a lot in his head. Mm. And then um, he went on to further education. I forget which one was it, Harvard. Well, he went to did he? I think Berkeley is where is at yeah. least where he went to graduate school. Yeah, it, one of one of the um, prestigious American uh, further education institutions. So <laughs> I think he went to came to England for a short period I as well. I believe that's right. He was did. it Cambridge or Oxford? One of the two. One of the two. <laughs> I'm, I'm not remembering now, but yes, he was here for some period of time where he did get into some great trouble. Mm. Um, reported that he uh, tried to poison one of his professors with a poison apple. So this is a sort of early example of the sort of um, odd behaviour that would, would get him into trouble later on. As we were saying earlier before we started recording, there was also an incident where a friend told him that he was planning to get married and he tried to strangle him. <laughs> he tried to strangle his friend, but um, nothing came of it because um, he was in a poor physical condition because he hadn't been eating, because he'd been studying so much, and so he was easily pushed, his friend easily pushed him off. But again, it, it talks of someone who is, I think, living on their nerves, basically. Yes, I think that there were some questions about his stability and whether he had some deeper psychological issues, which somewhat resolved, I think, as he aged. Mm. But although those psychological issues might have resolved, there was emotional uh, issues, uh, things to do with his private life, which 
are quite extraordinary, really, when you look at the historical record. What we're essentially talking about is his romantic life. You, you've done much more work on this than I have. Although eventually we work on the American uh, nuclear weapon project, at the same time, the two women in his life romantically were both very much associated with the Communist Party. Yes, um, which I think was not atypical of the sort of intellectual elite mm -hmm. in, at Berkeley, you know, um, or in California during the time. He was a thinker and an out-of-the-box thinker, which is what made him a great physicist. And I think he chose unstable women <laughs> as maybe they were mirrors for something mm. inside him or maybe he had a, a savior, I mean, we can only speculate, a savior complex. But uh, he did eventually settle down with uh, Kitty, Catherine Punig, and I think that was a very tumultuous relationship mm -hmm. and you know it's reported he had at least one affair, maybe two. She may have as well. She was a really colorful mm. figure. Oppenheimer was her fourth husband. One of her previous husbands had died fighting in the Spanish Civil War yeah. and he was a communist. Yes. And also at the same time, I think after they got married for a period, as you were indicating, Oppenheimer was having an affair with Jean Tatlock. That's the name, yes. Who was also heavily involved with the Communist Party and the government knew about this, the American government knew about it and were... Watching him. Yeah, and also possibly afraid that this was leaving him open to blackmail. And this is where we get really into the dark stuff because there's also a theory. She officially committed suicide, 1944 was it? Something? I believe that's right. Yeah. And he was with her the night before she committed suicide, I believe, or shortly before. Officially, the official record is that she committed suicide, but if we live in a world of conspiracies and some people believe that she actually um, was murdered by the American state because they were afraid that she might embarrass Oppenheimer or, or perhaps even recruit him to, to the, or betray secrets to the Soviet, who knows? Maybe one day that the records will be released and we'll find out. We've talked enough about conspiracy theories, let's have another poem. Uh, something that maybe talks about that period, or maybe talks about his personal life. I'll read this called uh, Jack Rabbit and Black Hole. But it's, it's the section uh, where he is talking, it starts with a prome, I guess I'd say, kind of a prologue poem to the section, and I'll, I will read that first. A man night walking, his hand inside the big hand of death. What is that hush I hear all around me? Oppenheimer was heard to be muttering. In periods of dread, he suffered a kind of hyperacusis so that even the steps of a doe at evening made a clip-clop so loud he got no sleep. Sometimes he rose in those small hours and played recordings of Bach, Prokofiev, Ravel, Glier. This made the room seem most like moonlight on woods, a place he could sleep inside. When I awaken in these same small hours, what I document seems most like deer glimpsed through timber. And this is called Jack Rabbit and Black Hole, in the, written in the voice of Oppenheimer. See how the mind links a landscape. Mesa, concrete block, a turtle turned upside down. 
From my robin's egg blue convertible, a windshield of daisies makes a chain. Assemblage for the nation play, the exact placement of thunderheads, no accident. I saw a jackrabbit hump under Celadon's state sage. I saw a jackrabbit bas-relief meat mark in the bleak terrain. I saw the panorama take no pictures. I saw the dream object, a great mantle eye, incandescent brain loosed high above desert tableau. I saw breaking from the body sun. I saw breaking from the sun false dawn. Zinnias, flash which bloweth, ruptured flies, mortal flush of the hair, then throat upon throat upon throat, whoosh, I wear it, I wear it some more. I wanted to step aside from Oppenheimer for a second and talk about another character that appeared, makes occasional appearances in the collection, which is Hank Williams. So I was wondering, you know, Hank, I suppose he had quite a tumultuous married life as well, didn't he? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I hadn't, wasn't really focusing on that, but yes, he absolutely did, and a tumultuous life, mm. and died very young. Yeah, I suppose in his, his way, um, I suppose he transformed his field as well, didn't he? Yeah, so what, did. what what space does he occupy within the poems in the collection? So for me, um, it's the personal part, the, my personal history there. Um, my grandmother was a country and western uh, musician, and my sister is as well. And so Hank Williams was uh, an artist that my father played or introduced to me. Um, and so for me, personally, as the writer, the, that person is also part of that landscape, even though I don't think that Hank Williams probably ever went to New Mexico mm. at all. Well, he's certainly yeah. not Los Alamos that I know of, and you know, died in his 20s. That part ties in probably more to my family history and my, my father's history. I have to ask, why all the deers? <laughs> <laughs> The collection has a lot of deers. It's, it's kind of like a totemic creature, isn't it, that moves throughout the collection? Yeah, I think the deer represent many, many things um, throughout the book. They, of course, they're, Los Alamos is a mountain setting. It's very rural and very beautiful and in its own way, besides some of the nuclear contamination sites, pristine. And there are herds of mule deer that live there. Mm. So they just became emblematic of that landscape to me. Um, it was always so exciting to see a deer, you know, when you're a child, or the fawns, mm -hmm. and there were um, two albino fawns uh, that were tracked through Los Alamos during the time I was growing up there, and so they're kind of mysterious and vulnerable, and the link to, you know, the natural world and the otherness that we maybe don't even consider when we do things like make bombs mm -hmm. and go to war, the effect on every other creature on this planet. Because mm. I think there was something you mentioned in the notes at the back of the book, uh, which isn't about um, creatures as such, but when nuclear bombs go off, they change the magnetic field of the world. And that's how a lot of birds navigate. So you have this huge epic conflict that's going on, uh, or so it seems, but in this sort of long history of, of the world, these things are actually just blips, aren't they? Yet, we, through our terrible and awesome weaponry, affect the, the creatures that live in this world that we share the world with, but 
We don't really act as if we're sharing the world with them. We act like they're sort of nuisances or distractions, don't we? Exactly. Mm. Shall we hear a poem that features deers? Sure. Deer or, or, or do you want to hear a Hank? Let's, I, I'll tell you what, let's have two. So this is, um, I touch the grass, I find a Hank song. Tell me the dream again, it's animal patches, stump lands and fields. In the dam flyway, a preacher machine. Says, what makes you sleep? Says, harm. And moonlight's no word through branches. Has seen too much coming, threadbare, sad, pine, a cowbell, goat with bowed head. Is it place departing? Baby, that's Knoxville. Somebody out on the lawn long after gone. Is it a Hank song? One and countless, a body's sorrow. I give him dress clothes. I give him a belt buckle, a Cadillac bench seat, another morning for morphing's idolate rabbit gunning. I lay it all out, listen. Chuck Will's widow sing songs a night jar. Sound enough for an ear hole called Radio Tears Rain. And as I read that, it strikes me, I'm trying to revive Hank Williams. <laughs> and I think I was also trying to revive Robert Oppenheimer. Oh, yeah. you know, in the, in the Ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's a sad dear <laughs> It's called a Stag Emblem, Emblem Anthem. In a fall of bone letter confetti, shin bone, ankle bone, Someone's Dodge pickup blinkering down the mountain while on the windshield, needles and double columns, pentameters, a billow of Bentley's 3D micrographs, zero visibility across the canyon. In the horizontal blind of a whiteout, the radio lows, I'm so lonesome I could cry. Forlorn country, where I imagine collision as a theory, Radiant shivers of deer by the road. Hank's resound. That midnight train is whining low. It's glassy static and somewhere a bead on. The bullet's trajectory set. A hammer slam, pow. That sound cracked like a match strike. The echo of it plunged into contents of a body. The brief opening of sight in the shatter of skull or heart. Three bucks taken and now taking shape on the beer of a flatbed I approach, downshifting, slowed in the lane. Kill limit, triptych, I name it. One of the things that's really interesting and different about the collection is that you incorporate photographs and images, which made me think of W.G. Sebald in the way that he brings in images as well. What were you trying to do by, you know, opening up the collection to, to photographs and archive elements? I think it was all within the framework of wanting to document, make a lyric document, and I felt, why would I limit it to only words? So the images, some of them are public images, government images in the public domain that I was able to use, and others are some little fragments from my personal history. There's a photograph of my father and a photograph of my son, actually. 
And I also have linked some sound pieces. With I was it. going to ask about that because that's the other thing that's quite unusual about it. You have some pages which just has a title on the top and then a, a, a web address. So you, please tell me about that. So those are links to um, sound pieces that I composed, which I really feel like are poems, but they're coming from a different dimension, maybe. And they there are four of them that are linked into the book, and so they I, where I would intend for the reader to listen to them, they are there's a blank page in the book with the title and the link to the sound. Um, there's a sound uh, bioacoustician named Bernie Krauss, who I really love, who goes out and uh, he records soundscapes in the natural landscape and talks a lot about how you can um, determine the health of a, of a ecosystem by listening to the sounds and how, how all the animals that live there fill in these spaces of sound and they all fit together exactly and if you disrupt them, like if you fly, fly planes over the field, the frogs don't croak at the same time so the predators can pick them off oh. and so there become there are more predators, less frogs, things like that. Um, and one of the things he says is that image is worth a thousand words and sound is worth a thousand images. So, I'm, I'm pretty interested in sound as a writer, um, in all ways, and I wanted to try to deconstruct a little and see if I could make something that was just sound. I think I'll finish by asking, you know, we're here in Scotland, in Edinburgh, in the Scottish Porch Library, uh, what brings you to our shores? I was lucky enough to get the Baltic, uh, a Baltic Writing Residency um, Fellowship this summer, and it was in Aurora, so I've been up in the Highlands for the last two weeks and just got into the city last night. So that's why I'm here. I have a, uh, my last name is Wallace, and oh, yes. my family is from <laughs> Scotland, right. but I did not do any searching for that heritage uh, this time around, or maybe another time. Didn't paint your face blue? Or... <laughs> no. Did I, like did, I did see a, um, a plaid that was called the Wallace plaid. In, I think in there's Inverness. a lot of Wallace plaids. <laughs> a lot of different Wallace I think Wallace there's a plaid. lot of, he's probably Wallace tomato sauce, you know, that's probably every kind of sort of yeah, merchandise you could buy with the name Wallace and stuff. Right, not Wallace, Loch Ness Monster, probably not. that's the other one we're famous for. Nessie uh, is. And that's it for another episode of the Scottish Porch Library podcast series. Some thank yous before we go. Uh, thanks to Joni Wallace for coming in and talking about her collection, Kingdom Come Radio Show. Thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. And thanks to Will Campbell, who wrote, produced, did everything uh, involved to create the music that you hear at the start and the end of the show. Uh, we'll be back in about a month's time with another podcast. But if you're interested in what we get up to between podcasts, you can, of course, check out our website, www scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk we have a twitter account and we're very active on that our twitter tag is at by leaves we live uh, we also have a facebook page and we're also on instagram at spl scotland so uh, i think without much further ado i shall wrap the show up with one last poem by Joni wallace twilight amphitheater to pan the sky over this city is to speak a stunning nothing. In the mind's eye, an approaching storm formation as atomic cloud gathered over Trinity site, 1945. A physicist's exhalation of relief, joy, fear inside it. A gathering of mule deer underneath. 
Because there are recordings of J. Robert Oppenheimer speaking under this same expanse, in this same terrain, some part of the man, a history, seems forever caught in the pines, the blades of grass. If I touch the trees, his voice comes alive there. If I touch the grass, I can just make another, Hank Williams, that twang inside my own personal childhood pastoral. Sometimes the sky formation morphs, crepuscular rays reaching through the cumuli and onto the sweep, cinematic, projector-lit, a western. Oppenheimer pacing a narrow room in the cool of evening. Smoke from his cigarette leaped all around him. His mind working the equation that says the atmosphere will, will not ignite when the gadget blows straight up into kingdom come. For the tilt shot, Kitty puning Oppenheimer, drink in hand, the clink clink of ice against the glass. Outside a window, caw and call of magpies, a scuffling in the aspen grove. Cut to a long drive on a stretch of road, almost dark, the percussive hiss of cicadas in stereo, and Hank singing, A.M., on this road of sin, you are sorrow-bound. Lines I heard from the back seat of a Mercury station wagon somewhere between Las Cruces and Los Angeles, highway to anywhere, USA. I am simply opening the record. Every cut is a lie. These shots were never next to each other in time this way. For the dossier, primeval forest below a wide open gala, Einsteinian dimensions, prodigal self and other set to witness this listening. For the soundtrack, scree of a raptor, you are here, marks the spot where the deer lay down under blue immensity. Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.